Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Imagine a time machine that takes you five years into the future. When you get out of the machine, it's obvious to you that major parts of American life are different because of the effects of the pandemic. But the question of how it was that they shifted, what brought about that change, that's less clear. If we go to the side of it's sort of every family for itself, do the best you can for your kids, um, then we know who gets left behind. That's Paul Revel, a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And then public education will eventually become to education what public housing is to housing. Revel is also the former Massachusetts Secretary of Education, and he argues that some of the shifts that we're seeing in education right now, often incremental moves, person by person, little decisions about how kids spend the time between, let's say, 3 and 5 p.m., or who they sit next to while they're learning, or who they learn from, those shifts could be part of a series of tiny dominoes that fall and ultimately reshape American education. You know, education as a sector had been lagging uh, well behind uh, business, industry, medicine, in terms of its embrace of technology to do the day-to-day business of teaching and learning and administration and things of that nature. Suddenly, overnight in March, we were catapulted into the world of educational technology, and we weren't honestly ready for it. And like so many other parts of our lives, from clothes shopping to meetups with friends, American education may bear the imprint of the massive dislocation that we've seen long after we stopped being worried about COVID. But the shift won't require lots of people to do something different. Indeed, some experts argue that if just a sliver of the motivated or the privileged kids in a system leave that system, it will change things for everyone else. Folks are out there seeking services to supplement or in some cases replace altogether um, the educational services that they'd previously been receiving for, from districts. And what's interesting was that this phenomenon of seeking additional choice has moved the conversation about school choice in America from being strictly one about charter schools and it being an urban phenomenon to many more suburban parents coming on the market and looking for services that they're buying on online or constructing uh, pandemic pods to provide either day-to-day schooling or after school or early childhood, any number of phenomenon. That shopping around leads to a worrying possibility, says Pedro Nagera, the dean of the University of Southern California's Rossier School of Education, a possibility that stems from the initial shock of moving kids online in the spring. Many schools were just not ready. They couldn't even figure out how to get screen devices to kids. There are literally millions of kids without even Internet access. And so the quality of what they got uh, often got pushed to the back. Um, And now that's become more and more of an issue. And I think Paul is right that those who can will increasingly opt for something better. And and that worries me because it's going to exacerbate the existing inequalities we have in education because it'll be those who, without the resources and time to do this, that'll be more and more dependent on what the public systems have to provide. So what kinds of alternatives are some parents with those resources and that time turning to? Paul Revel at Harvard says, well, there's a menu of possibilities, and we're going to have more about this later in the show. But 
for starters... So you take a phenomenon like Russian math, which is a particular kind of math yes. curriculum you can get online. So a lot of people are buying into that and they're, they're, they're finding out, gee, I can purchase high quality math services for my child who really seems to like it. And we'll do this four or five days a week. And I'm not sure, actually, some of them are thinking that when school gets called back into, quote unquote, normal session, whether they'll actually want to go back because they've actually liked what they've gotten in Russian math. So that's one kind of phenomenon is the, mm-hmm. the sort of a la carte on the Internet. And the other phenomenon is getting together for either part-time activities to supplement school, like this summer you had summer camps or you're getting parents doing early childhood and and creating um, you know centers for their children to go to where they can do online things in early childhood. You do you're getting after school and weekend kinds of activities. So supplementary, complementary kinds of activities, and then you know the most um, in depth sort of involvement. You see parents actually pulling together and saying, "We're going to hire a teacher." You know, some mm-hmm. of them making as much as one hundred and twenty-five thousand, one hundred and fifty thousand a year to wow. run a school, and uh, and that school will replace either a substantial part of what the district is doing, or will replace the district altogether. I, I have to say, I've actually heard of uh, education officials writing to parents and saying, "Stop." trying to poach the teachers in this town to like work for you personally like that's how bad i guess things have gotten um pedro what are you seeing you are in la what are you seeing around you um something similar um you know you see a mix you know many parents simply don't have the time to do the research to recruit a teacher to recruit other parents to pull off the learning pod so they're they're dependent on whatever the schools provide and I would say that's the majority of parents still. But there are others who are figuring out, and, and, and I've seen parents who are quite clever about this. They're, they're getting uh, reimbursements because they're calling theirs a charter. So they're getting reimbursements through the public system to support their pods. So you, you, you see the whole mm-hmm. gamut. And again, it, it depends a lot on the information that parents have and, and the time um, at, available to them to do this. Uh, people who are working full time typically don't have the ability to pull pull this off. So uh, again, it goes back to what I said before about the inequities. Pedro, you know, I talked in the beginning about uh, this idea of like getting in a time machine that maybe brings you forward in the future, five years, something like that. Do you think we will look back at the pandemic? in a few years as a moment that did reshape public education? I think we will. I think we will because I think um, although it could be a moment where the disruption created by the um, end of school as we know it um, leads to something better, I don't see evidence right now that the educators are thinking ahead thinking ahead to how schools could be more supportive of kids, how they could be organized to be more stimulating places. I mean, schools still have an advantage over remote learning because many parents and many kids uh, want to be together. Um, They benefit from the social experience of school. But unless we find ways to make that more uh, supportive and more responsive to the needs of kids, I think that we're going to see more and more people, again, with those with means, 
choosing something, a uh, more boutique option that they okay. pay for um, to support their children. It's interesting because we have certainly seen in many districts that private and parochial schools have opened for in-person learning this fall, but public schools continue with online learning. And I wonder, you know, when we talk about that time machine, is the increase in interest in non-public schools, is that a blip? Uh, You know, like when the public schools reopen physically, will most everybody abandon, you know, the parochial school and go back to public school? Paul, let me bring this question to you. In, in five years, are we going to be looking at this kind of aberrant moment in time, or, or is it something lasting? Yeah, I'm not sure that phenomenon will will we'll see as much of that in the long run because there's only so much capacity and there's only been, uh, you know, there's been some movement, but it's been modest movement to the parochials and to the privates at the moment. Okay. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, to your question about the long-term residual effects, I, yeah, I'm a little more optimistic than Pedro is about some of the things that I think could happen. Um, and let me give some examples. I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, to start where we've been talking, you know, the use of educational technology is going to dramatically increase in, in public schools. And hmm. I think we, if we're smart about this, we can deal with some of the equity dimensions by using technology to expand the boundaries of schooling so that we're not limited to the physical geography of a school and to the artificially imposed hours on learning to connect with school time. So I think that will that will be helpful. Family engagement is another phenomenon that, you know, for a long time we gave lip service and education to involving families, but it was the rare school that really did in-depth family engagement. And suddenly families are truly at the center of the educational enterprise, which in our rhetoric we always said they were, but we didn't treat them that way. And now we've found ways and means in lots of our school systems to connect with parents and put them at the center. And then finally, I'd say this this notion of personalization. I think, again, if we look at medicine or we look at business, you know, the, the movement over the past uh, you know, a couple of decades really has been toward individualization, customization of services. We're still in a factory model in our public education system that was designed in the early 20th century. And we need a system that meets every child where they are and gives them what they need. Every kid needs a success plan and a navig- navigator within the school system to help them find their way. And so these are sort of major sort of transformational shifts that I think e- uh, enlightened educational leaders will find a way to uh, to pivot us in those directions. So, Pedro, do you agree with that, that positives coming out of the pandemic are, look, we've got more technology, we've got more family involvement. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. Um, but, you know, and I don't want to be the naysayer here. I just know so many families that are overwhelmed and stressed out by it. Because they're working while their five-year-old is trying to do kindergarten by Zoom, and, and it's just not working for them. Kids who are, are normally very engaged in school who just get tired of six hours of sitting in front of a screen and then playing video games for another six hours. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not healthy. And so I, my worry is that um, it, schools are not going to be able to pivot as, as well as they should. Some will. And we'll see that, um, but but many others won't, because we know from past experience 
that often it takes schools longer to adjust to changes uh, around them, changes in technology and other kinds of change. So uh, I don't want to be uh, negative about it, but I, I do think that, especially when you consider the budget cuts they're going to face uh, as a result of this looming recession, it's going to be tough times ahead for education. And conversely, Kara, um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it either. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, you know, we got I, the two extremes here, right? <laughs> I see some positive things coming out, and I and I agree with Pedro completely. I mean, I think this is a struggle for many families in the way things are. So I don't see the continuation of this system, and I do see substantial equity risks. I mean, that's what I was really pointing to in this phenomenon of pandemic pods. The risks on the side of deepening inequity. Uh, I think uh, probably outweigh the positive possibilities as far as that particular Mm. phenomenon goes. But it is true also to get to something you mentioned earlier, our larger school systems, our school systems that have large scale, have deep standard operating procedures, lots of inertia, have detailed union contracts that control uh, all kinds of things in terms of the way in which education is conducted, have had much more difficulty in being nimble and adaptive in uh, meeting the challenges associated with this crisis, whereas smaller schools and smaller school systems have generally been more able to do that. You look at just how these schools and school systems used the last summer. Some used it very well to get teachers up to speed on state-of-the-art online education. Others were hamstrung. They just weren't able to do it. So I think that uh, the rigidities of the, the larger system have been kind of spotlighted in this crisis. And one hopes, although, again, I'm, I don't know that I'm optimistic here, we'll find some ways to loosen up those systems so that they can be more customer responsive and more adaptive in situations of crisis like the one we're now experiencing. I'll throw that to you, Pedro. Do you think these big, big systems that we have um, that govern how schools are? I mean, this is, of course, even more true in big cities than New York's and the Chicago's and the Los Angeles's. Um, are these going to be broken or changed by the pandemic? I don't think they'll be broken. I think the fact is that there'll still be lots and lots of families out there who depend on them. But right now, I'm in touch with many of these superintendents, and their major preoccupation is how to open schools safely. Uh, They're thinking about testing. They're thinking about how do you clean buildings? How many kids can you accommodate safely? They're not thinking about... Uh, how do you design uh, learning communities that are, are are stimulating and how do you personalize mm-hmm. and customize? So I think they're at a huge disadvantage uh, because of the scale that they have to deal with. And the widespread differences in, in, in children's backgrounds. I mean, if, if, if one size fits all doesn't work well for, for students, it works even less well for families. And so we've got a wide distribution of families, particularly in our urban district, and it makes it it makes it difficult. And I I liken the phenomenon of urban districts is like a a traumatized heart attack patient in a hospital trying to uh, recover. Um, and and you don't talk to them about changing their lifestyle at that point. You're just trying to get them up and breathing and drinking and taking nutrition and so forth. And then maybe you talk about long term change. But right now they're they're like a, a traumatized patient or somebody coming out from under an earthquake and just. Uh, standing up, dusting themselves off, beginning to communicate and restore some basic elements of normalcy to get going again. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Paul Revel from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He's the former Massachusetts Secretary of Education. And Pedro Noguera, he's the dean of the University of Southern California's Rossier School of Education. 
We're looking at the question of how public education could be changed long-term by the pandemic. You can find this whole conversation on our website, innovationhub.org. You can also subscribe to Innovation Hub's podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're coming to you from GBH and PRX, and we'll be back with this conversation in just a minute. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. They say timing is everything, which it was for both Courtney Wittenstein and Joseph Connor. Wittenstein lives on Cape Cod, owns a business, and she's the mom of two young kids. In September, while many large cities in the country reopened for virtual education only, Wittenstein's second grader had the option of going back full time. So we decided because of... um, my son has asthma and my parents and my husband's parents are in the higher risk zone for, um, you know, potentially hazardous COVID. Uh, we decided that it would be best to do remote. Almost immediately, it became clear to Wittenstein six hours on the computer for her second grader wasn't going to work. Even though she and a couple of other families had hired a teacher named Julia to help out with their kids as school restarted. But the school said they couldn't take him back. They were at capacity. So our only other option would be to do the remote or to do homeschooling. Um, so I had a panic attack <laughs> and I um, contacted the other two moms that were in this group. And we all kind of decided that um, and we talked to Julia. We pulled Julia into this to make sure that she was kind of on the same page. She had come one of the days to the remote learning and her eyes got all big, like, how are these kids going to do this? This is, it's just too much. So she agreed to join in. And so on day three, we all wrote our letters to unenroll our kids from the public school system. That weekend, the parents purchased a homeschooling curriculum. And by Monday, the kids were being homeschooled, which changed everything. I really do think our kids will look back at this and be like, 2020 was the best year ever. Whereas like the rest of the world will be like, 2020 was actually the worst year ever. But this experience is going to bond them for life and they get to do school for three to four hours a day. They're not in school sitting behind a desk for eight hours a day. I don't think kids need to be. Wittenstein says she'll probably send her kids back to public school eventually, though not if COVID cases remain high. And for sure, it's costly to do homeschooling. But there's also a cost, she says, to wearing masks all day, to not being able to touch each other, to staying six feet apart. Now, while Courtney Wittenstein was grappling with the effects of the pandemic on Cape Cod, in New York, entrepreneur Joseph Connor was watching an astonishing transformation. And so we started getting requests from parents that we were talking to to provide teachers. And that's kind of when we first started setting up our learning pods. Connor, who used to be a teacher, had co-founded a business called Schoolhouse in early 2020, with the idea being to put together small community schools with maybe 20 or 30 kids. 
Then all of a sudden, he found himself in the midst of a whirlwind. Everywhere, it seemed, parents were stuck. They wanted to educate their kids. They were trying hard to get some work done, either inside or outside the home. But it was difficult. When spring turned to summer, it became clear that for many districts, the fall would be remote, too. In July, when the Los Angeles Unified School District said that they would initially go virtual, Connor's company saw interest from L.A. County spike 3,600 percent. So for us, a lot of that demand meant that we had to be really good at recruiting teachers. And so that's kind of become one of our core competencies. We're not willing to open up pods in areas where we don't have great teachers. Um, And so in L.A., that meant kind of going out recruiting and finding outstanding teachers. And we've done that kind of in all locations where we currently have pods. The cost on average to be part of a full-time learning pod, Connor says, is about $14,000 per student per year, cheaper than many private schools. 92% of our um, tuition that we take in goes directly to the teacher in the form of salary and benefits. They're full-time employees uh, with generous health benefits, dental vision life. Um, and in addition to that, we don't kind of have a lot of the legacy costs that other schools have, such as a large physical facility, large bureaucracy. We're able to run quite lean. Um, and part of that means that we're able to kind of then reward the teachers accordingly. So they usually make um, more money with us. Connor says his company, Schoolhouse, believes in equity. He has taught in low-income communities himself, and Schoolhouse has pods in which some parents pay more so others can pay less. But the question of what this moment will do to the future of American education is a very, very big one, bigger than one company or one parent. And some of the chaos that we're seeing when it comes to education may not actually be chaos. It has a pattern, says Pedro Nogueira, the dean of the University of Southern California's Rossier School of Education. USC has looked at low-income families in Los Angeles and how they're faring with virtual learning. It's a real shame because so many are just not able to participate, both because of access issues, shaky internet connections, or or lacking uh, proper screen devices, but but also many are in overcrowded housing situations, or we have a large homeless population. Um, And so just many kids not able to participate consistently at all with learning. And Noguera says that there are dimensions of this reality that may not be widely understood. You know, in a lot of schools, kids are not required to um, put on their video so you can see them um, for good reason, you know, for privacy. Um, But that often means that teachers don't even know kids are there, um, if kids are actually engaged. And and so the data on participation is, is actually suspect because while kids might be tuning in, it doesn't mean they're actually doing the work and they're learning. And I've talked to a lot of teachers who say, you know, they're just talking to themselves in a screen and they don't even see their students. So... This is, there's no way to spin this as a good situation. But it is a situation, to be sure. And kids with parents who have to go to work as bus drivers or nurses or postal workers, they've presented a major challenge to cities and towns. That's one of the reasons why some schools have opted to have their, uh, their classified staff come in, have the teachers zoom in, and uh, the children are present, but the teachers are not. 
Um, and even that is not a, not a uh, you know really a ideal situation either. But um, and then you have to wonder about the classified staff. Why are their lives less um, <laughs> important to protect than the uh, than the teachers? So the, the districts are trying a number of things. Some are saying we're going to prioritize kids with special needs because they need more attention or younger children. Uh, the good news is the research showing that schools haven't been vectors for the spread, but um, there's still a lot of concern and caution out there. Paul Revel from the Harvard Graduate School of Education notes that some cities are creating learning pods for low-income and homeless kids. But the scale of what is happening in American education is incredible. More than 50 million kids were sent home in March. Some are back to school physically, some are not, and some are doing a hybrid approach. Revel has written that there was a moment in the early 1990s when charter schools came on the scene in Minnesota. And that turned out to be an issue that shifted the conversation around urban education in this country. This moment could mark another, perhaps equally momentous shift if a portion of parents find alternatives outside public school. I don't think suburban parents are much interested in the um, concept of charter schools per se. I mean, we have some suburban charter schools, but not many by comparison with the urban schools. But the idea that you might want to exercise some choice instead of sort of automatically defaulting to your local school system, which is anywhere from pretty good to excellent, which has been the norm in the Mm -hmm. past, I think that's changing. And I think some parents are getting choice and actually liking it more than they thought. They have the kid who I mentioned earlier who they match up with Russian math. They actually like having their children home uh, more hours than they thought they would. They found a way to juggle their job responsibilities if they have to do that. Um, they've, They've liked the collaboratives that they've Uh, signed up for, and that's been helpful. Again, I'm not talking about this happening to everybody. This is not the standard experience. But I think there's a growing interest in that and in the notion that uh, maybe I could do a kind of a la carte education for my child by piecing together a Russian math, a collaborative, a certain Mm -hmm. amount of time in the mainstream school system. And that begins to have an effect on making public education. And our school attendance laws look different than they have in the past. Now, we've had this before. We've had homeschooling. And we've got a substantial number of people in the United States who do homeschooling and have various arrangements with local school systems for participating in portions of the services that the districts provide. Uh, But this could become a wider phenomenon. I was going to say, that's just a a tiny percentage of people who go to public school. But what happens if 5 or 10 percent of suburban kids get peeled away and let's say, just don't come back. No, like 90% do, 95% do, but some percentage, and it may be some of the most motivated kids and parents, they just never come back. Well, it changes the market. So it's a question of then where will those folks go for services? And then how will they feel as parents and as a constituency in a local community about paying taxes for a school system, the benefits of which they do not derive? Um, so, I mean, it, 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 it changes the character of public education a little bit. It also may change the disposition of suburban parents toward, um, toward topics like school choice. You know, we had a 
recent phenomenon here in Massachusetts of voting for a lift on the cap in charter schools. And most suburban parents were negative on it. Uh, and many of them had little or no understanding really of what charter schools were, but they'd gotten a message that uh, uh, charter schools were negative as far as uh, drawing hmm. money away from the mainstream school system. So uh, there was a two-thirds vote in a state with a lot of pretty good charter schools against charter schools uh, and, and against lifting the cap. I think uh, the dynamics might tip a little bit now that more suburban parents are actively engaging in choice, even if it isn't charter school choice. So let me bring back in here uh, Pedro Nagara, dean of the School of Education at USC. We were already looking at a situation in the U.S. in which inequality had spiked. You've got social mobility now higher in places like Denmark and Canada. Um, and in the city where you live, Los Angeles, Schools are obviously not going to open before January, um, if they open then. And by January, mid-month or so, they will have been closed for 10 months. But you could imagine maybe possibly a situation in which kids don't go back to school before June. I just wonder what the long-term implications would be of sending kids home and then bringing them back to physical classrooms like a year and a half later. You know, it depends on what we can do to make up for what they've lost. Um, you know, if if we were able to provide a lot of support with summer and, and tutoring, um, we could make up for a lot of this. It's not as though, uh, you know, you think about kids sometimes who miss school uh, because they're sick. Um, we have lots of kids um, who's, who are migrant uh, laborers or, uh, and whose parents are, and they move frequently and miss lots of school. So we have research showing the impact of learning loss and what can be done to address it. Again, it comes down to how well organized we are to, to do so and, and, and whether or not the funds needed to provide the support will be there. If they were, then, then I think we could uh, minimize the uh, the negative uh, impact. Um, but my fear is uh, that the political will to do so isn't there. Do you think it's crazy to think that there will be districts where kids will have been sent home from school in March and they will go back to school a year and a half later physically? Um, that's my fear. And my, yeah. I, I particularly worry about the older kids uh, who are on, uh, you know, trying to go to college and, and the discouragement that they've now experienced because they are older and, and um, the idea of going back to high school uh, at 18 or 19 uh, may be more than they could bear. The, the, the pressure to, to work instead will be great. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen, but I, I do worry that um, making up for all this lost time is going to be very hard. Um, you know, the truth is that if, if, if families are, are able to provide the support, you know, you can get, do a lot at home with kids. And we know that for this from families that support kids with homeschooling. Um, but it takes a, a lot of time and um, a know-how to do this. And not every family is prepared to do that. A lot of other countries seem to be approaching the issue of school differently so that we saw end of October, you, you know, new lockdowns were announced by Germany and France. And one of the only activities they allowed to continue, um, at least initially in those countries, was school. Um, and in many European countries, kids K-12 
came back to school in the spring. Like they, they stopped going to school as we did, but then they came back um, and then they had summer vacation and then they came back in the fall to physical school and, and many are continuing now. So I wonder like how you think about that in the context of what you see here. Well, I think in those countries, you find that they've placed a much higher priority on the, um, you know, fixing the infrastructure of public schools to make it possible for the healthy return of children. And I don't think we've done that in the United States. I mean, we haven't had what we really need, kind of a Marshall plan. I was on with a colleague, Joe Allen, from the Chan School of Public Health at Harvard the other day with with some con- congressional staffers. And he was talking about the degree to which, you know, a simple solution by pu- like putting an air cleaner in every classroom in the United States and lifting the window two or three inches would go yeah. a substantial way toward making it safe for children to return to schools. So I don't think we've spent enough attention uh, to um, to how we're outfitting schools to be safe places. I mean, we know that younger people are less likely to get the virus. They're less likely to get any kind of severe symptoms. They're less likely to transmit the virus. And so there's good reason to think that we could bring young people back, particularly if we do it in reduced numbers, you know, and with masks and with testing and with contact tracing and things of that nature uh, in smaller numbers, um, that uh, we, could, we could do a great deal more in bringing them back than we have. And he argues that the risks of not bringing children back to school in terms of social and educational damage outweigh the health risks of bringing them back to school. And the fixes are relatively inexpensive. We just haven't had a sort of priority focus on that. You know, it, it, it just is another reminder that when you let science drive policy on something like this, you end up with a very different approach. We haven't gotten clear guidance from either the CDC or the uh, Department of Education. Uh, The states, I don't think, have done much better in providing guidance. So instead, what we have is every district trying to figure this out on their own. And that's not the way to handle uh, education of millions of kids in this country. Um, and, And so we're seeing, you know, very different approaches, even in communities right next to each other. And, and that, I think, is a reflection of the lack of a clear and coherent policy about how to reopen schools safely. Hmm. Okay, and let's take our last break here. We're going to come back for a final few minutes with Pedro Nagara from USC's Rossier School of Education and Paul Revel from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Paul has actually written about how the rise of kids doing more sort of a la carte activities outside school, whether it's just enrichment or full-on homeschooling, that phenomenon could change public schools in this country permanently. We're going to have a link to his work on our website, innovationhub.org. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, back right after this. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1978, a man named Howard Jarvis finally realized a dream. Jarvis had moved from Utah to Los Angeles in the 1940s, and he'd bought a house for $8,000. He was part of an influx of Americans moving to California, making home prices soar. By the mid-1970s, that $8,000 house, it was now valued at $80,000. And Jarvis was exasperated. He had campaigned against taxes before, 
But in 1978, he became a star. We have a new revolution against the arrogant politicians and insensitive bureaucrats whose philosophy of tax, 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 spend, 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 elect and elect and elect is bankrupting we, the American people, and the time has come. As real estate values skyrocketed, so did property taxes. And a lot of Californians were angry, not just Howard Jarvis. Proposition 13, which limited property taxes, ended up passing in a landslide. Before Proposition 13 in California, California was a nation's leader in education and a world leader in education, and now uh, its school systems struggle mightily. That's Paul Revel, the former Massachusetts Secretary of Education, and he argues that much as we saw California's educational system change because of Proposition 13, we are living through a pandemic-induced moment when public education is also being shifted. But to be fair, the makings of this moment were in place before 2020. You know, we're in a situation in, in the United States where we've undervalued the development of human capital. We've undervalued our investment in children and education. We spend a lot of money on, on schooling, that is true, but we don't spend nearly enough on, on health care, on stabilizing housing, on early childhood education, on all the supports and opportunities that young people need in the 80% of their waking hours that they spend outside of school that will help them come to school ready to learn. That's why, he says, our educational system has fallen behind those in many other countries. Because we basically stayed in place. We've locked down on an early 20th century model uh, that doesn't work very well in the 21st century age. And uh, until we're able to be more nimble and flexible, until we're able to invest in the things that contribute to child's well-being, the things that those of us who have privilege uh, routinely do for our own children, we need to find ways like, um, you know, summer learning, after school learning. How about health care? How about food and nutrition uh, and, and things of that nature? Mental health care is a big issue. Until we start to attend to children's well-being generally and recognize that if we don't develop talent, if we don't develop human capital in this country, we are going to lag economically. We're going to develop an even greater underclass that those who are working will be unable to support. Then we're in deep trouble. And right now, other countries have moved beyond, beyond us and ahead of us in terms of doing a better job of educating their citizenry. And when Revel talks about the things that the privileged can do for their kids, that's doubly true now. At a moment when some public schools are offering full in-person education, some are offering virtual education, and lots are offering something in between. It's a moment when public education could cease to be the default that it was for many middle and upper class families, and that could affect their attitude towards funding it, regulating it, and embracing it. For two months, we had no instructor-led training at all. And then we started in May, we started to have 15 minutes a week of instructor-led training by teachers. Maria Makarinkova lives in a Seattle suburb, and she's the mom of a six-year-old. But since me and my husband both working full-time jobs and very demanding jobs in the tech industry, for us it was challenging to really be there for her in helping her at the full capacity. So that's why we uh, decided to supplement her education 
and we're doing several classes on top of her regular school. Makarenkova represents the kind of parent that Revel thinks could change public education, the kind of parent who went from mostly relying on public schools to loading up on enrichment options, like classes from the Russian School of Math, also called RSM, which is a supplementary approach to math that has caught on, often in affluent communities in recent years. And it's something Makarenkova turns to for her daughter. But this fall, supplementary activities were not going to be enough when the local public school announced it was going virtual. And I realized that it's not an option for us, like both working parents from home. And it means if she's in the class only for 45 minutes, the rest of the time we need to help her. And that's why we decided to switch to a private school. And we started, like, we basically went back to our pre-K school where she attended before attending the public school in the kindergarten. And this was super helpful for both of us because we realized we don't need to compromise on our uh, work and careers and her education. It's actually what I see. It's a better education level that they gave her. We still supplement, though, with the RSM just because she loves it. Makarenkova isn't sure if her daughter is going to return to public school after the pandemic. She likes private school, but it's costly. And she's trying to save for college. Meanwhile, most American kids, the vast majority, remain in public schools. And Revel thinks the possibility that many students will learn virtually from those schools for a year and a half, from the spring of 2020 to the fall of 2021, is real which could inspire a small army of parents to supplement or opt out. There were very high hopes, you know, four or five months ago that we were all going to come back in person in the fall. And it's turned out to be very uneven and, you know, tens of millions of children not back in classrooms this fall. And uh, from the way things are going now on the health front and the way the numbers are running, um, it's a fair prediction that winter is going to be highly disrupted, and we're not even sure what's going to happen in the spring. So I think it's a reasonable prediction. And what are the consequences? The consequences are deepening equity divides. In other words, the people who are going to be most hurt in this crisis are the people who were already most disadvantaged in terms of taking um uh, you know, t t taking full opportunity and full benefit from schooling. So what we're going to have to do in order to welcome them back whenever that happens, whether it's fall of 2021 or in some kind of intensive summer work, is we're going to have to develop systems that recognize these differences, that some children are going to have come through this period relatively unscathed and relatively on track with where they ought to be, and others are going to be way behind. And we're going to have to adapt to that. We're going to have to customize as they do in medicine. We're going to have to move to more of a case management model, meet children where they are, give them what they need inside and outside of school to catch up and um, and and be on par with where they need to be because there's going to be an enormous amount of learning loss. I mean, let's face it, in this even this past summer, what we did was we missed a, a quarter of a year in academics. And rather than hold everybody back to catch up with that work in the fall, because we couldn't have tolerated the additional numbers that would have then come into our schools, we socially promoted a whole cohort of students.
Mm. And uh, so we've got, we always had differences as people move from one grade to the next, but now those differences are even deeper and wider. And we, we've got to develop a more adaptive model of education uh, that, again, a, an operating principle is meet them where they are, give them what they need. So does that mean, too, when you look way out, will there be, you know, I asked in the beginning about, like, put yourself in a time machine and think about five years from now. Do you think there will be generational effects so that in a, somebody who's 10, there there might be an effect on them 20 years from now about like what happened to them during this time in their lives? Well, you know, that that may be true. I mean, life expectancies are long these days. And and, you know, the whole, you know, a lot of the premise of the standards based school reforms in which all of our states have been engaged in for the past 25 years or so is that it shouldn't be about time, it should be about mastery. And if it takes you a little longer to achieve mastery, that's all right. What's important is you get to the level of mastery. So I think we're going to have to we're going to have to adopt that attitude here. It's not so crucial that you complete high school, for example, in four years. What's really important is whether it takes you three years or six years, that when you leave high school, you have the skills to be and the knowledge to be successful in college or on the job if you go into the employment force. So this is what I mean by saying we're going to have to then uh, develop a model where we say to children as we work with them on this catch-up exercise that if you need you know, 300 days a year of schooling as opposed to the 180 that we currently uh, allow, uh, then we're going to find a way to get it uh, for you. If you need um, seven or eight or nine hours a day in terms of tutorials and extra supports uh, to catch up and be at grade level, we're going to find a way to do that for you. It may take you a year or so to um, catch up in that way. Uh, but in the long run, it won't matter if you have the skills you need ultimately to be successful. Uh, Pedro Nagara from USC, let me uh, bring you back in here. We've been talking about people peeling away from the traditional public school system. Um, and there's been some written about families of color deciding, you know, I'm going to educate my kids at home in order to avoid racism that, you know, is out there in school. Do you think across the board, perhaps, we are going to see more people than we think opt out and say, look, I can take care of education better myself. I, I you know, I don't think that that'll be a large scale um, okay. phenomenon. I think there'll be a small numbers that will do that and, and have been. We've seen that for a while. But I think most families are going to be dependent on the public schools. The public schools still the place where working families have to turn um, really is a place to put their kids so that they're safe and supervised. And then we hope that on top of that, they'll get a, a good education. You know, there's no real alternative to that. And, uh, and the families that have been doing homeschooling, they can tell you it is not uh, something you do easily. You, it takes, requires a lot of time to do well. Pedro Nogueira is the dean of the Rossier School of Education at USC. Paul Revel is the former secretary of education for the state of Massachusetts, and he's a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks very, very much to both of you. Kara, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you both. And a quick postscript here. 
in June, when we last talked about K-12 education in America, we met Jenna Ruiz and her son, Owen. They live near Flint, Michigan, and they were struggling with both shaky internet connections and concerns about the future. I think the one thing to consider um, with the fact that families are going to have to try to navigate this as parents working. Like that's one of my biggest concerns is I have, you know, Owen who is six and we also have a three-year-old and I cannot imagine sending them to our normal babysitter who is my college cousin. She also launches my one or my two-year-old niece. So she'll have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and then would have to teach a six-year-old classroom lessons all day. I don't see that being feasible. So then at that point, I get worried, what am I going to have to do with my job? Well, nearly five months later, Owen is doing virtual school, which the family feels is safer, even though in-person school is an option. It's doing pretty good. What do you like the best about it? I like how last year we couldn't really get to see our friends, but this year we get to see our classmates. Jenna has been able to work from home, and there are some upsides to school, especially compared with last spring. His teacher from last year was not able to connect with them because of how her internet was, and so they weren't able to do any Zoom meetings. He never got to see his friends from March until we started school again this year, and so that's been a big piece for him. Owen also gets to spend more time with his little sister, and he's discovered ways to push the boundaries academically. He enjoys, you know, that extra time sometimes where he can get on those educational websites and just do things that are more tailored to him versus is going to school and, you know, they're they're learning addition and he can do like multiplication, you know, so there, there definitely have been some benefits. But the uncertainty about the future remains. The one thing that I am concerned about is obviously at some point we are going to have to go back to work and it's probably going to happen quicker for me, I feel like, than it will him returning to school. And they've already said that if cases continue to rise like they are in the schools, they will not add any more students into the district um, in person and they may actually start sending some out. So we're not sure what's even going to happen with school because of how the cases are kind of spreading right now around here. We've got more about all the guests and the topics that you've heard on today's show that's at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer, Elizabeth Ross, producer, Mark Sollinger, associate producer, Sarah Leeson, and engineer, David Goodman. We also had production help from Caitlin Falls. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.